2006, February 14th. Today's lecture is lecture number 28, Groups and Clusters of Galaxies, which will begin in just a moment. There we go. Okay. So today's lecture, lecture number 28, is on groups and clusters of galaxies. We've been dealing with galaxies individually, but now it's time to, sh to look at another property of them, which is their environment. Unlike the case of stars, galaxies are very strongly influenced by their environment and, in turn, influence that environment. So today we're going to explore the question of the fact that galaxies don't always go through space all by themselves. They go through together sometimes in groups, sometimes by themselves, and sometimes in immense clusters, some of the largest structures in the universe. Today we're going to be doing a power zoom, if you will, out through the universe, from the scale of galaxies to the scale of the very largest things that we can see that are constructed of galaxies. And of course, before I begin, it's time for the weekly podcast shout-out. In this case, it's going to be to Wayne and his son in southern Australia. Wayne is a former United States Marine who now lives in southern Australia. And I got an email from he and his son are actually following these lectures along. So hopefully they're listening to today's lecture. All right, the key ideas for today's lecture. Galaxies are often formed, they often gather into groups and clusters of galaxies. And we'll give a specific definition of the difference between a group and a cluster in just a moment. The Milky Way is no exception. In fact, the Milky Way is part of a small group of clusters we refer to rather unimaginatively as the local group. The local group consists of the Milky Way and Andromeda and a whole bunch of other sort of hangers-on, about 39, 40 galaxies all told. This appearance of galaxies and groups, in fact, begins to betray something which has become one of the real interesting properties of the universe that we've discovered in the last half a, half a century. That is, that there is a hierarchy of structure in the universe. We begin with the idea of this class of talking about stars, but in fact, stars are only just the bottom layer of an immense hierarchy. From individual galaxy, you go to groups, which can be anywhere from 3 to 30 galaxies. Groups can then see larger systems or clusters, which contain up to 30 or thousands of bright galaxies. Finally, into superclusters, clusters of clusters. And these superclusters themselves form themselves into the largest structures we see in the universe, voids, filaments, and walls. The structure of space on the very largest scales we can map is not simply a uniform distribution of matter, but in fact it's foamy. There are walls and filaments in very, what we call, large-scale structures. So we're going to begin the lecture today by looking out from home, but we're going to end up near the very edges of our visible universe. And that's a nice lead-in to next week's topic on the subject of the universe itself, or cosmology. Now, I'm going to, if you'll pardon me for just a second, I'm going to kill the lights, only because I want you to be able to see this in as much of its full glory as possible. This is a picture taken, this is actually one small segment of an image of the sky taken with the Hubble Space Telescope. It's called the Hubble Ultra Deep Field. It's actually one of the most majestic pictures I've ever seen of the sky. There's about, maybe on this particular picture, four stars in our own foreground galaxy. This little star right here, this little object right here are the two brightest, and there's three other which are too small. Everything else you see in this picture is a galaxy. Now, our own Milky Way is a large, bright spiral galaxy. It contains 200 billion stars in round numbers. But it's only the beginning of the structure of the universe. By present count, of which this Hubble Ultra Deep Field is one of the most dramatic pieces of data that we've gotten to date, gives us an idea of how many galaxies there are in the visible universe, the extent to which I can see with my telescopes. That number turns out to be, only as a slight coincidence, between 200 and 300 billion bright galaxies. So take the Milky Way, 
with its hundreds of billions of stars, and it's only one of hundreds of billions of systems more or less like it, spirals and ellipticals and irregular, filling the entire universe as far as we can see. But while we see all these galaxies separate in space, in fact, galaxies do not go through space by themselves. This is an absolutely stunning picture, which was taken by my colleague Roger Smith at the Cerro Tololo Observatory. This is the building of the four-meter telescope. You can see the hatches open here to let the air through. This used a 2,000, uh, basically a four-megapixel electronic detector to take a photograph of the sky. We see over here on the right-hand side of this picture the Milky Way galaxy, the spattering of stars. Stars spread through the Milky Way like grains of sand as this bright band across the sky. But in the southern hemisphere, especially our friends in Australia, can also look up on a very dark night and see two other patches of light distinct and separate away from the Milky Way. These are the large and small Magellanic Clouds. They're not part of our own Milky Way. They are satellite galaxies of our Milky Way. In fact, they are large, irregular galaxies, rapidly forming stars, that orbit around our galaxy and, in fact, follow our galaxy through the sky like a couple of dogs following a man walking across the field. So galaxies tend to come together. They tend to gather into groups or even larger assemblies called clusters. Groups and clusters of galaxies are, in fact, where most of the galaxies in the universe are found. Most are actually in fairly loose groups. The very rich clusters are actually a relative rarity. Only about 5% of all galaxies are actually found in clusters. But there's very few galaxies that actually go through space all by themselves. Many, in fact, even just come in pairs. It's the smallest grouping that we know of. And then a small retinue of very, very faint little dwarf galaxies. Dwarf ellipticals, dwarf spheroidals, and dwarf irregulars. The basic properties, we define the difference between a group and a cluster basically on the number of members. If you have between 3 and 30 bright galaxies, you get called a group. It's a somewhat arbitrary line, but it's, you had to draw it somewhere. Whereas if you get anywhere from 30 to 300 or more bright galaxies, you're referred to as a cluster. Now, these are systems that are actually gravitationally bound to each other. The galaxies within them feel each other's gravity, and they move under the influence of each other's mutual gravity. The sizes of these, uh, of these clusters and groups range from a megaparsec, about the size of our own local group of galaxies, up to as much as 10 megaparsecs across for the largest, richest clusters that we see in the sky. Often these things contain just a few bright galaxies, but many, many tens of very, very faint dwarf galaxies. Our own local group is going to be an example of just that kind of system. The dwarf galaxies, when you actually do a full census really deep, are actually the dominant galaxies in the universe. What jumps out to our eye when we look at these beautiful pictures like the Hubble Ultra Deep Field is, in fact, the bright galaxies. We're actually missing a lot of the large number of galaxies that lie just below our ability to see. When they get very far away, they just simply get too faint to pick up. But, in fact, the universe is filled with lots of little dwarf galaxies, dwarf irregulars, dwarf spheroidals, and dwarf ellipticals. To date, the number of clusters that have been found identified as separate systems in catalog numbers about 3,000. And in large round numbers, that's approximately the tip of the iceberg. So they're very interesting systems all by themselves. Today we're going to explore some of their properties. Now we can start on talking about local assemblages of galaxies by looking at our own home, the Milky Way. The Milky Way is, is one of the two brightest members. In fact, some would argue it's in fact the brightest member of a small assembly of about 39 galaxies in which the two brightest members are the Milky Way and the Andromeda Galaxy. We call it the local group. It's approximately a megaparsec across. 
It contains five relatively bright galaxies, of which the Milky Way and Andromeda are the brightest members, and three relatively small galaxies, a small spiral galaxy named M33, the Large Magellanic Cloud, a large, bright, elliptical, irregular galaxy, and IC10, which is another bright, irregular galaxy, which actually orbits separately far away. M33 is, and IC10 are, in fact, actually separate out in the local group itself, whereas the LMC is bound to the Milky Way as a companion satellite galaxy. There are only three spirals within this group, as I've just mentioned. There are 22 ellipticals, but all of them are dwarfs. You have the giant, the four very tiny ellipticals and a large number, approximately 18, so-called dwarf ellipticals. And I've actually, for those of my colleagues who might be listening in on the podcast every now and then, I'm, I'm also lumping in the so-called dwarf spheroidals into the dwarf ellipticals. They're small assemblages of old stars that have no gas or dust. Finally, there are about 14-odd irregular galaxies of various types. Now, the details of this assembly are not as important to us as the distribution of objects. Bright galaxies within a group are relatively rare. They're the minority of objects. Spirals themselves are a minority, but the rest of the galaxies, which make up most of the population of the local group, even though they combined only add up to about the mass of a Milky Way or an Andromeda by themselves, are very numerous. So small dwarfish galaxies make up a reasonable fraction of the mass, but they make up most of the number of the galaxies in the universe. If I add up all of the mass of everything within the local group, and I use the motions of objects within the local group to estimate the local gravity field, what I find is that the total enclosed mass of the local group is about 5 trillion solar masses. Now, this is actually a fairly rough estimate. It's very, very difficult to get a full mass census for the local group, but it's probably good to within an order of magnitude. So these are fairly large assemblies. We've gone from something the size of the sun as being a fairly typical thing in the universe to now where the basic unit of an assembly of galaxies may have 10 to the 10 to 10 to the 11 solar masses. We're talking now 10 to 100 billion times the mass of the sun for a galaxy. Clusters now and groups now begin at a trillion times the mass of the sun. These are very, very large concentrations of matter in otherwise empty space. Here's a three-dimensional map of the local group that shows you the scale here of a roughly a megaparsec in radius. The distance between the Milky Way and Andromeda here is about 750, 800 kiloparsecs, 0.8 megaparsecs. We're now on a scale where I have to switch my units to megaparsecs to keep from dragging zeros around. The two brightest members are the Milky Way and Andromeda, and then a third spiral here called in this map the Triangulum Galaxy, although M33 is its more common name. The LMC and the SMC are these two little blotches here you see orbiting the Milky Way. Andromeda also has some satellite galaxies, but they're elliptical galaxies, M110 and M32, for example. And then all of these other little tiny dwarf galaxies of various kinds spreading out over a roughly spherical volume, a megaparsec in, in radius. And this is what our local swimming hole looks like. Now, again, to kind of give you an idea of scale, we're, we're starting to talk about very large scales. Let me put this in perspective. We often talk about distances of light years at the beginning of class, but I've been using parsecs largely because parsec is an observable. But it's nice to switch into light years every now and then to remember that we're talking about the distance light can travel in a certain amount of time. It takes light more than 5 million years to cross the local group. So we're talking about a very large structure Five million years is a very, very long time. Five million years ago, there was nothing on this earth that resembled a hominid, much less a modern human being. 
what's going to probably be one of the more difficult things to wrap your head around, because it certainly is tough to wrap my head around, is as far as size scales and crossing times, we're only getting started today. This is small by the scale of the structures we're speaking of today. Now, the local group is sort of our home, but in fact, there is a nearby cluster. The nearest cluster of galaxies of any amount of richness is in the constellation of Virgo. It will begin to begin become visible as the constellation of Virgo rises more and more in the spring sky. If you turn a pair of binoculars on the, Virgo, on the Virgo constellation, you might start to notice, if you have a good dark sky and a really powerful pair of binoculars, that there are a few fuzzy patches in the direction of Virgo, but nothing to really get excited about. If you then start taking deep photographs of the sky or use a very large telescope, you find, in fact, there is a large concentration of galaxies in the direction of Virgo, which turns out to be what we now call the Virgo cluster of galaxies. Even though it's a fairly impressive assembly of galaxies, as clusters go, it's actually a fairly loose assemblage, and it's centered on two bright ellipticals, the two brightest things you could see, in fact, in a pair of binoculars, M87 and M84. The properties of the Virgo cluster is it lies approximately 18 megaparsecs away from us in the direction of the constellation of Virgo, and it's roughly 2 megaparsecs across. So even though there's a lot more galaxies in, they're packed in a slightly tighter space. The, the local group is fairly low density by comparison. There are, by current census, approximately 2,500 galaxies within that 2 megaparsec region, most of which are dwarf galaxies, little dwarf ellipticals and probably some un unaccounted for dwarf spheroidals and a bunch of dwarf irregulars. If I add up all of the mass of the Virgo cluster, and that includes a component of very hot X-ray gas, which is detectable from X-ray satellites, I get a mass of 10 to the 14 M sun. That's 100 trillion times the mass of the sun. And this is actually a fairly loose and small cluster by the scales of the sorts of things we're going to be talking about today. So Virgo is the nearest very large mass concentration. It's about 18 megaparsecs away. And a lot of what we know about the internal details of clusters comes from the studies of not only the Virgo cluster, but another nearby rich cluster you'll often hear referred to in your book, for example, the Coma Cluster of Galaxies. These are very impressive assemblages of galaxies in the sky. Here's a photograph of just the inner portions of the Virgo Cluster of Galaxies. These are these very large elliptical galaxies, which ride around in the center. There's other bright ellipticals, a bright spiral galaxy, and a series of spirals. And even though it's kind of hard to see, a lot of the fuzzy things that you see in this picture belong to the Virgo Cluster, except for every now and then, you'll often see, like right here, there's a galaxy that seems a whole lot smaller than the rest. In fact, there's a cluster of galaxies just behind the Virgo Cluster that's visible through it. So clusters are really stand out when they pick up in the sky. In fact, a deep, deep image of this particular part of the sky is literally lousy with galaxies. So nowhere can you actually put your telescope and take a picture electronically and not see dozens of galaxies. These are very rich concentrations of galaxies on the sky. They really stand out. Now, Virgo is... is Impressive as it is, is only just the beginning in the richness of clusters. We often refer to the population of clusters by a number we call the richness. The very richest clusters of galaxies that we know of contain many thousands of galaxies and extend for anywhere from 5 to 10 megaparsecs. Again, sort of put that in perspective, a structure 10 megaparsecs across takes, takes light approximately 32 million years to cross. So these are very, very large groups of groups of objects, but they're all bound together by, local, by their gravity. Even though they're separated by light travel times measured in tens of millions of years, 
They know all about each other's presence because of the presence of their matter. They actually can feel each other's gravity fields and the galaxies orbit around the common center of mass of these immense regions. The masses for some of these things end up at about 10 to the 15 solar masses. That's a number so big, I don't even think there's a word for it. I think maybe quadrillion solar masses is close, a thousand trillion. At this point, we sort of throw our hands up and stick to scientific notation. Our language is starting to lose the ability to describe how big these things are. Very rich clusters are characterized primarily by having one or more really giant elliptical galaxies sitting at the very center. They dominate these clusters, where spirals are common in the, in the groups. So if we look around us in our local group, we see three bright spirals and a bunch of little faint ellipticals. But as I go out into clusters, starting with Virgo, the brightest galaxies are a pair of very, very bright, massive elliptical galaxies. In fact, they're among the most massive elliptical galaxies we know of in the universe. Trillions of solar masses all by themselves. When we get to very rich clusters, the clusters at the center of the, of the cluster, the galaxies at the center of the cluster itself are very, very large ellipticals. Basically, they may have grown, as we're going to see tomorrow, by having consumed smaller galaxies in the form of galaxy cannibalism. The spirals tend to be found on the outskirts of these very rich clusters, and the ellipticals tend to be found towards the middle. So there again, now we're seeing differences of types of galaxies. Ellipticals are free of gas and dust. They're spheroidal in shape. They contain old metal-rich stars, old stars and lots of metal-rich stars. They formed all their stars a long time ago. Spirals are gas-rich. They're still forming stars today. And now we've found the first difference between spirals and irregulars so spirals are regulars, spirals are regulars and ellipticals that has something to do with the environment. There's something about the set cluster environment at the very center that favors the presence of elliptical galaxies, whereas spirals tend to be found on the outskirts, out in the galactic suburbs of the cluster. That's an initial clue as to what may be going on. The other thing about these clusters is they also gather a lot of gas to themselves, gas that may come out of or be blown out of individual galaxies or leftover gas out of which these clusters themselves may have partially formed a very long time ago. If I look at these clusters not in visible light, where I see the starlight, but I look at them in x-rays, using a telescope like the Chandra X-ray satellite or the XMM-Newton satellite, what I find is I don't see the individual galaxies per se, but I see that the clusters are actually immense puddles of extremely hot gas. How hot? Temperatures of anywhere from 10 to 100 million degrees Kelvin. It's extremely thin gas, so it isn't going to burn up anything. But spread out over 10 megaparsecs, it fills an immense volume. And in fact, it represents anywhere from 10 to 20% of the total mass of these clusters in the form of this X-ray, what we call intra-cluster gas. So cluster environments, the whole system of a cluster itself, is a self-gravitating system. Just like a galaxy is a system of stars held together by their mutual gravity, clusters represent the next layer up in hierarchy. They, too, are gravitationally bound systems. So we've begun to see the first instances of a hierarchy of greater and greater structures in the universe whose common denominator is matter, luminous matter and otherwise, held together by their common gravity. So gravity is the, is the physics that dominates on the largest scales in the universe. Here's a beautiful picture of one of these rich clusters. It's got a name, Abel 1689 for a catalog of clusters put together by George A. Bell for part of his PhD thesis at Caltech in the 1960s. 
Um, you can see in the middle, this is a, a color picture from the Hubble Space Telescope, these sort of brightish yellow elliptical galaxies. Look at all the ellipticals in the middle of this cluster of galaxies. You can see them because they're very smooth. They're kind of red-yellow looking. They almost look kind of gold in the way the, the Hubble Space Telescope people chose to combine the colors. And yet embedded every now and then are these little spirals, which appear fairly blue. But if you want to find a spiral in this picture, you've really got to kind of go to the outskirts. There's one up here in the upper right. There's a couple nearly edge-on ones down here in the lower right. And there's, even, there's one right down in the middle, but you'll notice there isn't a whole lot of star formation going on. That's a very, very early type spiral galaxy, which has formed most of its stars. There's a few bright stars in the field here. These are actually field stars in our own galaxy that happen to be superimposed on top of this cluster. But there's also something else you'll notice. If you look carefully, some of you will notice there's kind of a, a ringish pattern around here. There's an ordered pattern on very large scales. If you look at it long enough, you can kind of see there's these sort of connected networks of arcs. And some of the galaxies tend to be smeared out preferentially along sort of the tangents of a series of nested circles. I'm going to leave that sort of with you. That's actually a real structure. The gravity of this cluster is so large. This particular cluster contains something like a few times 10 to the 15 solar masses worth of material that its gravity is actually causing space and time to bend in a way to actually make it a lens for all the galaxies in the background. And we'll see that next week when we talk about the modern theory of gravity, general relativity. This is an example of a gravitational lensing cluster. So much matter is concentrated here, it not only affects its surrounding galaxies, it affects the structure of space and time itself within the vicinity of this cluster, which is more than 10 megaparsecs across. Now, if that weren't the end of structure hierarchy, as we look on larger and larger scales in the universe, we find that in addition to clusters of galaxies, the clusters of galaxies seem to know about the presence of other clusters of galaxies. We actually find clusters of clusters. So just like one of those um, funny little, uh, what do they call, matryoshka dolls that you get. They're basically little Russian dolls. They're nested one inside of another. We're finding a series of structures nested one inside of another, each larger piece that I go up contains a larger structure, larger networks of material that knows about the presence of the other. If it was simply randomly spread across the sky, yeah, you can kind of occasionally connect the dots, but it wouldn't really stand out. But when we look across the sky, we see that clusters do not go through space alone. That if I find a cluster of galaxies, there's a very high probability that another cluster will be found in proximity. Whereas if I go off into an empty part of the sky, I'll be very unlikely to find a cluster nearby. We call these clusters of clusters superclusters. The properties of these things is they range in size up to 50 megaparsecs. Now we're talking about structures that take light more than 160 million years to cross. The masses are between 10 to the 15 and 10 to the 16 times the mass of the sun. They're bigger than any individual cluster that we know of. Now it turns out that these superclusters are just sort of the fluff on what was otherwise empty space, something like 90 to 95% of the regions around superclusters are empty space. In fact, they're voids. And these superclusters, rather than being large spherical shapes, most of the clusters and groups we've seen, I can kind of draw a sphere around them and say, well, here be the cluster. But the superclusters aren't spherical. They aren't just big balls. They actually now are laid out in long filaments and strings across the sky rather than immense spheres. So even though they, I talk about 50 megaparsecs, that's kind of the length of the structure. 
the width of the structure is more like the width of a single cluster. So you can sort of think about clusters being laid out along kind of a string or a filament, as if they were sort of like beads on a necklace. And that's a, a, an impression of what the scale of a supercluster is actually like. Quick look, make sure I'm not doing something slight. Overall, what we're seeing is the superclusters are about topping out the hierarchy of structure that we see in the universe. They are the largest coherent structures that I can see. When I get beyond the scale of superclusters, I now have to look at assemblies of superclusters, but now I've reached, if you will, the basic unit of large-scale structure. Let me give you some examples of what these superclusters look like. This is a, again, this is a computer-drawn map, and I'm going to, uh, I'm not going to draw the lights out just yet. This is um, a group of superclusters. You can see uh, various of these things laid out as sort of filaments surrounding large empty voids. This particular computer-drawn map by, by Mr. Robert Powell shows in red the various voids. Here's one called the Capricornus void, the Corona Borealis void, the Microscopium void. Those are named for the constellations they're in the direction of. These are very large structures in the sky, so they actually span whole constellations. And around the outsides of these voids, you see a series of clusters of clusters. Here's one called the Pavo Indus supercluster. The Centaurus supercluster over here is this long filament. The Coma supercluster is out here. There's even something called the Virgo supercluster and so forth. I've drawn a scale bar. This particular structure, set of structures, which is the sort of the supercluster's forming around a 500 megaparsec sphere around us. This is a structure that takes light one and a half billion years to cross. So it's a very, very large series of structures, but you can see there's an organization to them. They aren't just simply randomly scattered. They know about the presence of each other. Now, the closest supercluster we know of is roughly centered on the Virgo cluster. If I look in the sky, I can actually see that some of the local clusters cluster near where Virgo is. This was actually noticed in the 19th century by the naturalist Alexander von Humboldt, who seemed to notice that in addition to the Milky Way across the sky forming a band of stars, that if you mapped out the positions of large assemblies of galaxies, galaxies were not simply spread all over the sky, but in fact seemed to form their own plane across the sky, which, which got later termed by Gerard de Vogelure as the supergalactic plane. Now, it's curious that people like Humboldt, when he saw that kind of assembly, was certainly must have been what was his thinking for reviving the island universe theory of Immanuel Kant. It really was showing that the galaxies were organized into large systems and that that large system, that apparent super galaxy across the sky, was not in the plane of our own Milky Way. It was actually a very important clue to what was going on it just took until the next century when people could actually measure the distances to galaxies and prove, as in Hubble did, that Andromeda was another galaxy that finally broke through the sort of conceptual logjam that was there. But the data was always there looking people in the face. It just took certain visionary people like Humboldt to see that. What Humboldt was looking at, in fact, was the Virgo supercluster, what we call now call the local supercluster, of which Virgo is simply one of the most prominent members of it. It's approximately 20 megaparsecs across on its longest axis, contains about 10 to the 15 times the mass of the sun. But of this whole supercluster, only 5% of that volume is actually occupied by galaxies. The other 95% is contained within a fairly large void of which the local supercluster rides on one end, kind of like the bright rim on a soap bubble. The local group is part of this local supercluster. We're actually viewing it somewhat from within, but we're actually out on the rim of the supercluster in some sense. We're on the outskirts. 
our entire local group of galaxies is actually orbiting, all the galaxies in our, in our local group are orbiting about a common center of mass. In fact, we in the Andromeda galaxy are actually orbiting each other slowly. Whether that orbit is a collision head-on or slightly skirting is something we'll pick up on tomorrow. But then that whole center of mass of the local group itself is falling towards the Virgo cluster. It's falling into the gravitational potential of this 10 to the 15 M sun that makes up the local supercluster. So if we look out into the universe, we've come a long ways from Copernicus who said, you know, the Earth is not the center of the solar universe. The sun is at the center of the universe, and we are simply one planet orbiting that sun. And everyone thought that was all the motions we had, was the orbital motion of the Earth around the sun. Then people began to understand that the sun was simply somewhere in a Milky Way galaxy full of billions of stars. And that sun is orbiting around the center of the Milky Way. It takes 240 million years to circle once around the center of the Milky Way galaxy. But that Milky Way itself is part of a larger gravitationally bound system, which is orbiting around the center of mass of our local group at speeds of about 500 kilometers per second. And that whole system itself is falling into an immense assembly of matter called the Volcal Supercluster. So we have motion upon motion upon motion. As I go up in every subsequent size scale in the universe, I find everything moving under the influence of gravity. And it's gravity that sculpts these structures. Now, why do these structures form the way they do? I can't answer that question today because it's part and parcel of the evolution of the entire structure of the universe itself. And so we're going to revisit how such structures form in, in the subsequent units of the class when we talk about the evolution of the universe. Here's a picture of our local supercluster. The local group is at the center of this picture in a properly provincial way. The Virgo cluster is over here, but you can see that there's a series of clusters, the Fornax and Eridanus clusters, and the rest of the pieces that make up the local supercluster are groups named for the bright spiral galaxy or bright individual elliptical galaxy that they're centered on. So we see again this hierarchy of structure. In this picture, an entire galaxy, the Milky Way, full of hundreds of billions of stars is reduced to a dot. And all the dots you see on this diagram that look like stars are individual galaxies. The main groups are small, loose assemblies of galaxies, groups, and then the larger, brighter clusters. And then the whole thing forms a single larger structure called a supercluster. If I then march out to much larger scales, I'm now going to extend my view of the universe out to billions of parsecs. I'm going to start expanding out to what I'll start calling the visible portions of the universe, as far as our ability to measure and estimate cosmic distances can extend. What I find is on that scale, I no longer find successively larger clusters of clusters, but I start seeing an overall pattern begin to emerge. The universe is not a smooth distribution of galaxies wherever I look. and In fact, it's foamy on the very largest scales. We see a series of structures, filaments, which are basically vast chains of superclusters, which range in size hundreds of megaparsecs on typical size scales and occupy about 10% of the volume of the universe. Well, what's in the other 90% of the universe? Virtually nothing. It's empty space for the most part. Not completely empty space, but very empty contained to the, compared to the filaments. I see the universe with light. Where the light is coming from is from the filaments, but between the filaments are vast voids. 
They range in size from 25 to 50 megaparsecs in size, and there are five times fewer galaxies in there than superclusters. They're not completely empty, but they're only filled with random islands of, of, of galaxies hiding within them and filling approximately 90% of the universe. Here's the largest map of the universe made so far. It's part of the Sloan Digital Sky Survey. I don't believe I've got the size scale. No, I don't have the size scale here. It's a couple of billion light parsecs across. The sun is down here in the middle. And now you can see, as you look at the distances going out radially in these various directions, you see are fans where we've counted galaxies and measured their distances along various lines of sight. These two large gaps above and below in this picture, which, by the way, there's a web page linked off this lecture which shows this picture with some explanatory bits. It's a very spectacular picture. These are regions blocked from our line of sight by the dust and gas in the plane of our Milky Way. So we're just, we've had this sort of zone of avoidance here that gives you the sort of double wedge diagram. And a couple of these gaps are simply places where the telescopes haven't yet completed their survey. But we see on both sides the scale here, each of these bubbles, is about 50 megaparsecs across. It takes light about 150 to 200 million years to cross each of these structures. And you can see how these filaments really do look like chains. This looks like the residue left over from soap bubbles having dried on a countertop. That's exactly the appearance you get of 90% voids. They're not completely empty. There's stuff floating in there. But most of the galaxies, most of the matter in the universe is concentrated into these vast filaments. Now, the way you can view this sort of voids and filaments, there's a nice analogy I can draw, is a nighttime photograph of the eastern United States. Right? The United States encompasses a very large volume, but people don't live uniformly scattered over the map of the U U.S. If I photograph it at night and I tell where people are by where their streetlights are at, I see that there are occasional clusters of people. For example, the Columbus metropolitan area is down in here. We have uh, the whole sort of, what is it? Cleveland, et cetera, is up in here. This is the whole Lake Erie coast. There's an immense eastern supercluster, which roughly runs from Boston all the way down to the Baltimore-Washington area, with vast networks in between. And then there are great voids. There's a great void over here called Kansas, for example. But even more voids as I head out to the west. So you can see how the United States, snapped from satellites at nights, takes on a filamentary structures. We see the light where the matter is. Or are we seeing the light where the matter is? The light in the universe is where the stars are. The very largest structures that we see in the universe are some of these filaments. The largest structure we've detected so far in the universe is referred to as the Great Wall. It's basically a sheet of superclusters, about 150 megaparsecs long, 60 megaparsecs high, and about 5 megaparsecs thick along a certain region. I've outlined it here in red. It's in one wedge of this very large section looking out where the sun is down here and Milky Way, actually hardly matters, the local group for that matter, is but one of the little black pixels over here on the right-hand side of this wedge diagram. And you go further away as you go out, you notice here surrounding some of these local voids and bubbles, Virgo is actually down here, we actually can see this large coherent structure. These are the largest coherent structures we know of in the universe. The mass of the Great Wall is 2 times 16 the times the mass of the sun. It is to date the largest structure we've ever seen anywhere in the universe. And it is sculpted by gravity, sculpted by the force of gravity, simply of matter calling to other matter across space and time. Now, I'm going to kill the lights here for just a second. For this next picture, what if we were to start from the perspective of the Milky Way and zoom out? 
As I travel further through these structures, a few local island universes pass me by. Small galaxies may be riding around with their retinue, but as I go to larger and larger scales, the true metropolitan region of galaxies that I see begins to suddenly become apparent. And I see that they're not everywhere, but arranged into filaments and voids surrounding those, filling those filaments. Occasionally a bright, thick cluster passes by, but for the most part, when I travel outward, I travel out through one empty space until I cross the filaments. What we're doing is we're zooming out in three dimensions in the Sloan volume. Now you can see the Great Wall appearing here in the upper left as a large assembly of galaxies and continuing out until finally we begin to go out to the largest scales that we can see. Now this picture is somewhat deceptive as drawn here because it looks like there's a bright center and then there's nothing out here. The reason there are so few galaxies in the outer part of this picture is not because they are missing, but because they are so far away, they become too faint to easily measure their distances. And so in this particular movie, which I think is so cool, we're going to look at it again. We'll start again. We'll start on the Milky Way, looking at it from the distance of the edge of the local group, and then we'll zoom outwards, passing out through local clusters, building onto the largest and largest scales. I'm only showing the galaxies here. We're going to be limited by our ability to measure distances. As we go further and further away, the galaxies, even when we're talking about hundreds of billions of stars, become too faint to observe easily with small telescopes, the smallest telescopes we built today. So what I'm going to see as I zoom outwards is as much of the universe as we've been able to map, and that's only really a relatively small portion of what I've been able to see. The rest of the universe I can only map on very particular directions. And so now we begin to see, as I zoom out further, the individual galaxies lose their, lose their identities, and I begin to see the very largest scale structures in the universe. Within this picture are only, only, he says, about one million galaxies. There are 200 billion galaxies in the observable universe. So what are the implications of this? Oops, hang on a second. That was an oops. Where's my last slide? Thank you. The existence of this very large-scale structure tells us something about how galaxies formed. We know that gravity has to do, have something to do with it, that these largest structures are sculpted by gravity. It's a reminder that even though gravity is the weakest force of nature on the scale of everyday things, when we go out to the scale of the universe, gravity is the primary rule. So clearly to understand how, gra how galaxies form, how these large-scale structures form, and indeed to understand how the entire universe formed, I have to understand what gravity is. And our Newtonian ways of looking at gravity are going to be insufficient. So we're going to have to look at a new way of looking at gravity developed by Albert Einstein in the early part of the 20th century called general relativity. And in fact, that's where next week we're going to begin our lecture on the universe. These concentrations of matter are where the galaxies are, but the question is, are we really seeing everything there is to see? There are lots of unanswered questions here. If I knew the answers to these things, I'd run away out of here and start writing papers that would make me famous. Why do galaxies only form in particular places? Why is it we only see things along the filaments? Why is 90% of the volume of the universe mostly empty voids? We think it has something to do with how those fluctuations that started those gravity mass concentrations began, but where did they begin? It seems to us it may have to go all the way back to the beginning. We'll see a bit of that next week. How empty are those voids really? I said that the density of galaxies in them is about five times less than in the filaments. 
So why do galaxies even form when there's virtually nothing? That's another question we don't know. Finally, we see a structure of hierarchy of structure. Stars making up galaxies, galaxies making up groups and clusters, groups and clusters forming into superclusters, superclusters forming into vast chains. Which formed first? The galaxies or the structures in which they reside? What's the direction? Did I form from the top down or do I build these structures from the bottom up with gravity? We're still arguing those questions and we'll pick those up in a later week. Oh yeah, your homework is back, so if you want to pick it up, come on up and get it.